scripture, let me ask you, please, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, as we come now to the scripture, that you would help us um, open our eyes, take away any reluctance that we may have to, to listening, to trusting. Help us to know you. And this we pray through Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 2 Kings in chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. I want to read this chapter. 2 Kings chapter 1, please. And I know in some of these longer narrative passages I've been annotating as we go, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that because I want you to react to this whole passage. I want you to think about it. As I read it, as I know you always do, but I want you to react to it. I want you to hear it. Some are quite bothered by passages like this, so I want, I want you just to soak it in. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, hear the word of God. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told, these, these, told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went uh, up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to them, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. The fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid. 
So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? All right. Hmm. Now, um, some read this passage and think God to be a capricious, ill-tempered bully for calling fire down on the heads of these men, these 102, two captains and their 50s, if you will. And, uh, and, and so why is that? Uh, why would some uh, think that? Is God really like that? And what really do we get from a passage like this? This is one of those eminently skippable passages for preachers. Uh, if I hadn't announced <laughs> that I was going to preach through the narratives of of Elijah, uh, then it would have been easy to stop at the end of First Kings and not go into Second Kings. But here we are, we find a passage like this. What do we do with it? I think there's something that we can do with it. Ah, I think there's something it does with us that is necessary. So let's take a look. Now, notice uh, the situation. There's a new king in Israel, uh, Ahaziah. We know about him, just his, his life, not just from this. He didn't reign very long, not just from this, but from the end of 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter uh, 22, beginning with verse 51, the last, very last paragraph in 1 Kings, we read this of him. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, so you remember Ahab, wicked king Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So we have the king of Judah, still Jehoshaphat there. Uh, and uh, now uh, Ahab has died, so Ahaziah becomes king. And he reigned just two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother. Now, it doesn't say that his mother was Jezebel, but one thinks that that may well have been the case. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done, which means in almost every possible way. That was his father and what his father has done. So here we have him. And so it's not surprising that when he finds himself on his deathbed that he doesn't call out to God. Now, the story says the incident was that he fell through some lattice work and it must have been a false sufficient to think that he would die. So there he is on his deathbed wondering, am I going to live? And in those days, a prophet might be of help. And so he sends for a prophet. But rather than sending for a prophet of God in Israel uh, to share with him, to teach him, to talk to him, to give him the word of God, he sends to this uh, God Beelzebub in Ekron, which was about 40 miles away, a different community. Um, this God Beelzebub is most likely to be uh, a mocking expression from the narrator of Second Kings. I say that because it is most likely that this God of Ekron 
was Beelzebul. Beelzebul means the exalted Baal, the exalted God, the prince of Baals, the prince of gods, the exalted one. Beelzebub means uh, the god of a fly. So it's likely that the narrator is saying to us, I want to give you a hint <laughs> that this is no god at all. Of course it's no god at all. Even if it was Beelzebul, it would be no god of all. And after all, who would want a god you could call Bub, right? Maybe that's the English uh, mocking. But, but, but Beelzebub, this god of a fly. So, so anyone reading this, knowing that, would say, Phew, what's he doing? And that's really the question, isn't it? Why would he not inquire of the God of Israel? And so he sends his messengers out to Ekron to, to meet with this, to, to inquire of this God, Beelzebub, Beelzebul. And so on the way, Elisha is told by an angel, go meet these messengers. He does that, Elijah does, and he meets them, and he asks them this piercing question. Is there no God in Israel to whom, of whom, you can inquire. Is that why you're ascending to Ekron? Now, in those days, it was interesting. Each area, if you will, city, if we can put it like that, but each area had its own Baal, its own God. That shouldn't surprise us. There's been interesting discussions about idols throughout the centuries that those who lived in the 12th century may have a, a different hope, a different idol, if you will, than those in the 18th century, or, or perhaps even those in the U.S., even now in the present. We, we think, what's important to us? What do we gear our life around? What, do we re what, what, what really dictates our lives? What, what's the God of, of the U.S. versus the Asian idol versus the South African idol versus the Central American idol, all of that? Uh, what's, what's the idol, really? Interesting Discussions. What's the idol of the baby boomers versus the Gen Xers versus the millennials? Or as my son always calls them, the baby woomers, because <laughs> they came from the baby boomers. I think he should copyright that. But, um, but, but, but what is it? If you look at different generations, what really drives each? Is there a nuance? Is there a twist? You see? And so the same in those days, except they had the honesty to actually label them. Each various region, each various place had this God. So here's this God in Ekron. And so, so, so Isaiah sends there, but it startles really God and startles Elijah. And he asks this very piercing question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? A sense of God saying, haven't I shown you enough? Haven't I shown you that I'm God? That your hope is in me, that I'm your glory. That is to say, that I'm the one you praise because I'm the one who supplies. I'm the one who provides. I'm the one who protects. I'm the one who loves you and cares for you and all of that. Haven't I shown you all of that? It's rather like this rather pathetic, really sad question that the prophet Jeremiah brings to us from God. When in those days the people rebelled and Jeremiah writes from God, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went to worthlessness and became worthless? In other words, there's God saying to this group of people, why don't, you, why don't you follow me? Why don't you trust me? Why don't you love me? Why don't you worship me? Why don't you inquire of me? What wrong have I done 
What did your fathers tell you about me that would cause you to, to not come after me? Do, do, do you realize, do we realize, that the very purpose of our being is to prove, to show, that there is a God in the church of Jesus Christ in whom we can place our hope. That's, that's, that's the very essence, you see, of why we exist as the people of God. Our children, kids, you should be growing up in our church asking that question. Is there a God in the church of Jesus Christ in whom I can hope? That's why, that's why we teach our children. That's why we have Sunday school classes. That's why we have blasts. That's why we have junior high volunteer staff. That's why we do what we do so that, so that our kids will know that there is a God in the church of Jesus Christ of whom they can inquire, in whom they can, they can really hope. That's why we do what we do. That's why we provide meals. That's why we do family promise. That's why Al takes a group of people to Mexico. That's why we, uh, we have the five loaves house. That's why we send uh, people to the inner city to work. That's why uh, uh, we teach. That's why we have worship. So that, that's why we work in the community of our, in, in our community so that through our lives and our work and all of that, people will know that there is, in fact, a God in the church of Jesus Christ of whom to whom they may inquire and whom they can have their hope, the very Savior of all. You see? And that's the question. That's the essence. That's the shock of this question of God saying, what do I really have to do here to show you? You see, I'm, I'm glorious. I'm I'm all sufficient. But you see, that's the very essence of idolatry, isn't it? To ascribe to another that which belongs to God. That's the very essence of our sin, you see. The essence of sin is not that it makes us stupid, but rather it makes us foolish. See, foolish in the Bible is a technical term. It's a term that is ascribed by the psalmist when he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And you see, when we come to that place, when we, when we say there is no God, then what we are at that point is foolish because then we exchange that which is true, God, for that which is, isn't, idols. That, that we exchange that which really can define us because he knows us to one who can't really define us because he doesn't know us, but when we look to this idol to define us, this one who really can direct us because he, he knows life and he's the giver of life to this one who can't, this, this one who is our delight because he will, can, satisfy to this one who really can't. You see, we make that exchange, which is a foolish exchange, really, isn't it? And that's exactly what Ahaziah was doing here. He was exchanging the glorious one true holy God for that which isn't. Rather than going to the very one who could help him, even the one who could possibly heal him, he went to one who is a non-entity, a non-God. And that is really foolishness, isn't it? You see, you see God is the one who can define well what life is and direct us well and satisfy us. And he can do that, you see, because he's all wise and he knows the very best. He's all wise. He knows the very best life for us. He knows that. And he can do it, you see, 
because he's all-powerful. So not only does he know what's best, he can bring about what's best. Nothing can thwart, thwart him. And we realize that he's loving. He's perfectly loving. So not only is he all-wise and knows the best, not only is he all-powerful and can bring about the best, but he will because he loves. So what's happening in the case of Ahaziah, what's happening always in the case when either he or we look to one other than God, we're making this foolish exchange. We're saying God isn't sufficient, God isn't able, God isn't wise, God doesn't know, God can't do, God doesn't love. So I'm going to go find another who knows and who can and who really loves. But the point is, there isn't anyone else like that, most especially these gods that we make up, you see. And, and, and not only is this the very essence of idolatry, it's the very essence of sin. It's the insidiousness of sin. It, it's there. It leads us astray. It, it takes us away from God. It makes us fools, you see, as we seek others apart from God. And, and the great fear of this is that sin is the quintessential mole, right? <laughs> it resides within us. It's there in us, you see. And, and, it, and, and, and so that's the issue. That's the problem, isn't it? And so we can, we can look down on Ahaziah, but, but really we, we know him, him well. But how foolish it was for Ahaziah to do this. How foolish it was at all. Didn't he know their history? Didn't he know the Exodus? Didn't he get the Passover? Didn't he understand that God had, had spared his people and delivered them out of this slavery, not because of their own merit, but because another took what they deserved, this land? Didn't he remember the Red Sea? Didn't he remember Sinai? Didn't he remember the manna? Didn't he remember the victory? Didn't he remember the land? Didn't he remember the protection? Didn't he remember the provision? Didn't he remember all of that from God? Not only that, didn't he remember, even in his own day, the lack of rain and the famine? Didn't he remember that it wasn't Baal that controlled that, but God? Didn't he remember Mount Carmel? Didn't he remember that, that, that there was a time... Too many years before this moment, didn't he remember that there was a time of this great contest between Baal and God, and didn't he realize that God had won with fire? God had shown up. He was the God who was powerful. He was the God who was strong. He was the God that could bring fire. He was the God of sacrifice. He was the God who would make provision so that we could live in his presence. Didn't he remember that? And then hadn't he heard the last time God showed up in Ekron and what happened there? It was in the days of Samuel the prophet. You may remember this incident that, that, that Israel foolhardily went into battle with the Philistines. They took the Ark of the Covenant with them. And because it was against the will of God, because at that point uh, Israel had sinned, uh, the Philistines won the battle. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Philistines said, here we have the God of Israel. And so we'll take him and we'll make him subservient to our God. So they took him to a city called Ashdod. 
And in Ashdod, the name of the God there was Dagon. And so they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put in the temple to Dagon. So they all went to bed. Next morning they woke up and there was this idol, this statue, Dagon. And that statue was on its face before the Ark of God. We're doing what we normally do when our gods fail us. They propped him back up. They put him back up for another night, another day, another night's sleep. Next morning, they came back. You can find this in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 5. When, when they came back, they, the next morning, not only was Dagon down on his face, if you will, but his head and his hands were severed. And so the question was, who was serving whom? Who was really God's? Well, they, a great uh, outburst of tumors came into the people, and some versions of the Bible are very specific as to where those tumors were, but they realized they needed to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant, so they sent it to Gath. Same thing happened there. Tumors broke out among the people, so then they sent it to Ekron, and the people of Ekron were saying, don't bring that thing here. We don't want the God of Israel here, and so they took it to Ekron, and what happened is some people died, and those who didn't die suffered from these massive and painful tumors. And so they said, let's get this God back to Israel. And so they made plans to send it back. Didn't he know that? How foolish he was with, with that vivid history, that kind of experience. And still, on his deathbed, he wouldn't inquire. He wouldn't inquire of God. So he realized that this is judgment upon him, that, 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 that uh, uh, Elijah sends this word back, no, you're, you're, really going to, you're really going to die. But what of this fire? What of this fire that comes down? Wouldn't there have been a kinder, gentler way of dealing with these <laughs> people who showed up uh, uh, to Elijah uh, when Ahaziah sent these two captains and these hundred men uh, on these first two encounters. Why didn't Elijah just, listen, let me tell you here, I'm the prophet of God, it'd be best for you just to go back. Why didn't he, why did he call, if you will, fire down in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of this situation? Well, it seems to us that this is a harsh thing of God, but perhaps it's really his mercy you ever wonder why it is that Ahaziah sent 50 men after Elijah? Does this look like an escort to you or an arrest? Does it look like he's coming saying, hey, please come with us and, and, and let's go back and we're going to hash this out with a king? Or, or does it look like they're coming saying, listen, the king has commanded you, come with us. The second group saying, come with us quickly. That is right now. Get ready. Come off where you are and, and come down with us. Or does it look like an arrest? Does it look like a murder? Does it look like his life is in danger? Well, you realize that when the third captain comes and he pleads his case humbly, he recognizes not only who Elijah is, but more importantly, who God is. That the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, don't be afraid. That is, this time, don't be afraid. You had a right to be afraid the last time, the last two times, because they were really coming to kill you. 
They're really coming because, because Ahaziah doesn't want to hear this word of God from you. Ahaziah wants to, 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 to snuff out the word of God in Israel. To do that, he's got to get you, Elijah. And so, so, so Elijah says, listen, we'll set up a mini Mount Carmel. We'll do this again. You didn't get it the first time. You didn't, see who Elijah, you didn't see who God really is the first time at Mount Carmel, so we're going to set it up again. So, if in fact I really am this man of God, then God is king, Ahaziah isn't king. He can't snuff out this word. And so if that's the case, then here we go. Fire will come down from heaven. And thus the fire came. What was the meaning of the fire? The meaning of the fire was God is God, and Elijah is his prophet. He speaks the word of God. You can't snuff it out. See, that's the mercy of God. The mercy of God to not allow us to seek after another. Not allow us to be satisfied by another. The judgment of God is to allow us to go our own way. See, always implied in these threats is that if you repent, then I'll give you life. Prophet Jeremiah lays that out for us in Jeremiah chapter 18 in verse 6. We read, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my, ha- in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time... I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do. In other words, always implied in the warnings of God, remember with Jonah and Nineveh, always implied in there, always embedded in the warning, is this, but if you repent. And so in each one of these situations, Isaiah had an opportunity to repent. He didn't get killed, if you will. He didn't die right away. But each time, Isaiah remember, I'm God. Don't seek after another. But you see, he wouldn't repent. He wouldn't. He continued to send these, these various ones. First group of 50 and the captain. And then the second group of 50 with the captain. And the second group was even more insistent. He says, come quickly, meaning come right away. The king summons you. And that, you see, all sets up this, again, mini Mount Carmel, this confrontation. Who's really God? Isaiah or God? Can he really snuff out his word or can he not? And so in each case, we have this. But you know, what, what's often offensive here is that it seems that God is just so very intolerant. One, one author puts it like this. He says, nothing is so offensive or nothing is as offensive as the intolerance of God. See, we rather like to create 
gods in our own image, image. And especially for us in our culture, we really like democracy. We really think everybody should have a vote in this as to who God really is. In fact, I've heard people say, so have you, I'm sure maybe you've said this, that I have the right to believe in God or not. And we realize that that is certainly true in the context of our culture, context of the United States of America. We have a constitution that gives people the freedom to believe in God or not. What we have to realize is that the kingdom of God is not a democracy. That God isn't simply head of one branch, and there are two other branches that hold him accountable, that check him, that balance him. No, no, no. God is God. He's the king. This isn't a democracy. And so while in America we can choose not to believe in God and there are no repercussions, if that's the case, that isn't the case in the kingdom of God. If we don't believe in him, if we don't trust in him, if we don't rely upon him, if we don't seek him, if we don't humble ourselves before him, if we don't believe in Jesus, the one he has sent, the way he has made, then there are repercussions. Because you realize, we realize, in the grand scheme of things, first and foremost, it is a crime to not trust God. See? And the reason that it's a crime is because there's a justice issue here. He's the one who made us. He has rights over us. Right? And, and thus, not to believe in him, to rebel against him, really is treason against the king, the one who is truly the king. Now that offends, you see, but it's simply true. It's a justice issue. And, and in fact, we realize there's a deep moral issue involved in this as well. It says something about a person who can rebel against, who can turn against someone who loves them. You see, it's, it's one thing if you're just sort of rude to some, some, some person on the street. It's another thing to be rude to your mom who loves you. Right? The scripture even speaks of that. It says, talk about your family. That's the people you should love first and foremost, your family. If you don't, you're like an unbeliever. You're like an infidel. He says, you love them first. Why? Because it's your family. Those are the people who love you. I know there are issues in families and all of that, but you get the point. And so you see, this is God who made us, God who cares for us. This is God who says to Isaiah, don't you remember the Passover? Don't you remember the Exodus? Don't you remember the Red Sea? Don't you remember Mount Sinai? Don't you remember the manna? Don't you remember the care and protection? Don't you remember the land I gave you? Don't you remember the fact that I've provided all of this for you? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember any of that? Why would you inquire of another when I'm here and I'm God? See, it's a crime, you see. And not only that, it's simply dishonest. It's simply dishonest. It's simply living a lie to live as if we're autonomous, to live as if God doesn't exist, to live as if all of this is from us, to, to take all that we have and to say, I made this. It's simply a lie. And so God won't let us live in the crime of it, in the morality, immorality of it. He won't let us live and the dishonesty of it. But, but, but the bottom line, the love part of this, is that it's detrimental to us. It's eternally detrimental to us not to inquire of him, not to trust him, not 
to love him. It's detrimental not only because of the punishment, it comes because of the crime, but because, you see, we miss life. We miss life. We're created in his image. That's real life. And if we rebel against that, if we forfeit that, if we turn away from that, then we've missed out on life. And so you see, this act of fire, it's the very mercy of God. It wasn't the first merciful thing that God did in Isaiah's life. Uh, Moab, we read it right as this passage begins, rebelled right after the death of Ahab. That would have been a great political embarrassment. Uh, after Ahab died and Ahaziah became king, Moab said, Ahaziah is nothing. We can get out of this deal that we had with Ahab. And so you see, it was a, a great political embarrassment. He had experienced a great economic embarrassment as well. He actually went into business with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. We read this in Second Chronicles. He went into, went into business with Jehoshaphat to build ships. And the business literally went under uh, because God was angry with Jehoshaphat for making such a deal with Ahaziah, the immoral king, that he said, this, this venture isn't going to work. And so all the ships got sunk. All of these things throughout the course of Ahaziah's life were merciful to God to wake him up. And he never woke up. See, life's like that, isn't it? There are all kinds of providential callings to us that tell us, you're not God, I am. That which you're trusting can't satisfy, can't help you. And yet there we are. The biggest one, the one that stares us all, that none of us wants to look at, is death itself. But I'll tell you from experience and from talking with others in this work that there are very, very few deathbed professions of faith. That's the exception, not the rule. Oh, it happens. We pray for it. We were involved in it. We share Christ with people who are dying. But the, the rule of thumb among people like me is that people die the way they live. People die the way they live. Because you see this death reveals what we trust. And so here's Isaiah on his deathbed. You'd think if at ever any time at all, he's ever going to inquire of God, ever going to repent, that at that point in time, he'd say, I'm going to die. I better, I better inquire of the Lord. But he doesn't. Why? Because he never did. Dear friend of mine from years away, gone by, tells this story when he was in World War II. He'd grown up in the church, had heard the gospel, and he said, I'll deal with that later. So he, was, he went to World War II, became a fighter pilot, and got shot down. And he parachuted out of his plane. He lands, has very significant injuries, conscious throughout the whole time, lays there for a significant period of time, finally is rescued. About three or four days later, he's rehabbing in the hospital, and he realized during that whole time, he never once thought about God. He only thought about his own survival. Later, he became an elder in the church, because he had come to faith, 
because he realized he needed not to put that off because we die the way we live and he was facing death the way he had lived, totally self-absorbed, trusting in himself and in his buddies and in the system to help him. We die the way we live. That's what happened here. You need to pay attention to the mercies of God, to every difficulty, every weakness, and even every blessing that we would turn and give and give thanks to him. The one who did get it is this third captain. The first two captains come. Ahaziah doesn't get it. So he sends this third captain. I don't know about you, but that isn't necessarily duty I would, have, I would have volunteered for. What happened to the first two? Well, and so he goes with an entirely different posture. He kneels before Elijah, not in the worship of Elijah, but in the recognition that he was a man of God and God was present in that situation. And so he yeah, a very different posture. He kneels, very different purpose to plead for mercy and grace. A very different plea for his own life. He realizes that Ahaziah isn't God, but God is God. He gets the message of fire. He gets that. And you may say, well, it's not good to be motivated by fear. Well, it's better to be motivated by fear than not motivated at all. And you can say, well, let me rush into the New Testament so I, 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 can, I can rush into the loving arms of Jesus, this one who said, if you don't love your father, if you love your father and your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Whoa. This one who said, don't be afraid of the one who can only kill your body, but be afraid of the one who can kill your body and soul in hell. That's this sweet and meek and mild Jesus. This one who heals a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, John chapter 5. After he heals him, he says to this man, go out and don't sin, lest something worse happens to you. What could be worse than the paralysis he's experienced for 38 years? He says, but no, sin is worse. The consequences of sin are way worse than what you've experienced. So let that be a warning to you. group of people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, did you hear about the tower falling on these people? Jesus, did you hear about this, 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 this raid upon these people who are making sacrifice and they were killed? And Jesus said, do you think there were sinners in you? Repent. See, that's a warning. That's a, that's a merciful warning. Read through the book of Revelation and, and there's one section of trumpets where all kinds of plagues happen. There are bowls of wrath being poured out and the refrain in those passages in the book of Revelation is, but they didn't repent. And that's describing history and telling us there are all kinds of messages, there are all kinds of providential, providential warnings, there, there are all kinds of things that come to us and say, you're not God, heed them. Right? That's the mercy of God. You don't repent. And trust him. Lastly, this it's fascinating that when um, Ahaziah asks, Who was this man who told you these things? They describe the way he's dressed. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, Well, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Nobody else has that kind of fashion sense. 
except for one who would show up later named John the Baptist. You might remember the end of the book of Malachi. There's a statement that Elijah is going to return before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, they think he might be Elijah. And so there's always that discussion. And, 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 and so his disciples one day asked Jesus about this. And, and he said, no, 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 John was Elijah. This John who dressed like Elijah. And then this John who came to do the very same thing that Elijah did, that is make preparation for the way of the Lord. This one who's going to come and announce repentance. Life because of, through repentance he says, oh, that, he, was, he was Elijah. And you remember when John met Jesus, he said, well, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus was dying on that cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me there were those around the cross that thought he was calling on Elijah to come and save him, but Elijah didn't save him. Elijah didn't send fire down on all those who were standing at the foot of that cross. He didn't send fire down on Pilate. He didn't send fire down on Caiaphas and the others who had so judged Jesus. The reason is that God sent that fire upon Jesus. See, the gospel is this, that Jesus had taken the fire. And so when we come with the posture of that third captain kneeling in humility, when we come with that purpose of desiring grace, when we come to that plea that says, may my life be precious to you, may I live. See, when we come like that, the outcome is that we do live. You see, this third captain came and he knelt and he pled and he trembled and he lived. And that's it with us as well, you see. When we as people come into the presence of God and we kneel in humility and we admit that we're not God and that we've sinned against him. And we make the plea for mercy and grace because of Jesus. We tremble before him and we live. Let's pray, Father. That satisfies our souls. We know that to be true. There is no other way. How could, it be? How could there be? And so God, we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus and we pray that you would enable us to inquire of you at all times to ascribe to no one else that which is yours and yours alone, that you're God. And it's in you that we have our hope. Pray for us, Father, as a church, that through what we teach, through our times of worship, as we pray, as we share in the lives of others, as we live our lives in our neighborhoods and in our jobs and in our families, with our friends, our acquaintances, as we play sports, as we 
go to various functions in the community. That people would know that there is a God in the church of Jesus Christ of whom they may inquire of their lives in whom they may have hope for all eternity. Father, please so work in us that that be true. I pray too, Father, for our children that they would grow in such a way in context of our church that they would know that there is a God in the church of Jesus Christ of whom they may inquire to whom they may look for hope that you would satisfy them that they would never doubt that but we pray that for those who are struggling in marriage who are struggling physically who are struggling financially They would know that you exist, that you are here, that you are the very God of our Lord Jesus Christ and that you are our hope. For those who are suffering physically, we pray for Lorraine Canistra. She recovers from her surgery this week for Judy Doolin as she recovers from hers. Father, even these moments, for all of us, for them, they would see as opportunities to kneel before you and to receive from you strength and help in their time of need. Heal them, I pray, Father. We are grateful for all that you've done in Jesus Christ. For you, who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, may we know that you will, along with him, graciously, mercifully, kindly, lovingly, wisely, powerfully give us all things. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As, I do, as, I, as we do, I, re- I remind you that there will be elders available to pray after this service. Please uh, take advantage of that if you have particular particular needs to hope in God. Receive this now as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore and together let us sing. Great is your faithfulness, O God. You wrestle with the sinner's hearts. You lead us by still waters into mercy. And nothing can keep us apart. So remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, oh God. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for
your love and justice, God. You use the weak to lead the strong. You lead us in the song of your salvation. And all your people sing along. So remember your people remember your children remember your promise oh god your grace is enough your grace is enough your grace is enough for me your grace is enough your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. So remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, oh God. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Your grace is enough, heaven reaching down to us. Your grace is enough for me. You are dismissed.